0: Thanks, Carl, again for uh, sharing your story, bro. So good uh, for t- doing that twice now. Praise God. Praise God for that. Just so good, to, I think, as church communities to pause, and we try to do this regularly in many and various ways, but pause and say, you know, God has brought us this far here and God has done this. This is something that no one takes credit for, um, especially just as a community ourselves, but something God is doing in our midst, and so praise God. Praise God for that. Uh, one thing too I mentioned first service I'll mention to you guys, if that's a, a newer concept to you, the content of what Carl said or just the idea of sharing stories like this uh, as believers, one of the reasons why we do it, and Peter may have said this too, but I'll say it again I guess, um, is that when we hear stories, we can identify intersection points with those stories where we can say, that happened to me or that that issue I too wrestled with or that particular verse was powerful for me and something God used to to change my heart and to lure me to the cross or to woo me to the cross or whatever it is. So some of you guys might not be Christians yet or you are and you look back on your story and you say that happened to me as well and, and it can be a powerful worship experience. I mean, but the Bible's full of stories. It's, 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 no, it's history, but it's stories where and they mean something to us because we can read them and say, you know, I have those same desires. I have those same issues. I have those same struggles, have those same sins and we have the same God. That's the ultimate thing is we can look at Carl's story, here, Carl's story and say the same... God that so clearly pursued Carl for years and years and years is pursuing you. There is no, there's, no, there's no multiple gods. There's no two gods. There's one God who has love for all, all of us, and he's pursuing us through his word and through the, through the church. So, so that's worshipful for me. And I actually mentioned to Carl, too, uh, first service. One intersection point for me is that I, I worry frequently that my flies open up here when I'm preaching. So almost, not every Sunday, but more than you might think, I'm thinking about that as I preach. So, I double-checked as well. You guys should just raise your hand and tell me if that's ever, I'd rather just, you know, turn around and fix it up here than go 45 minutes and realize, there you go, that happened. (laughs) So, uh, anyway, uh, we're going to dive right in today to our study in the book of Matthew. We've been preaching through the gospel of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, for over a year, and we are in chapter 18 now, over halfway through Chapter 18, 21 to 35 is today's passage. And just to catch you guys up to speed a bit, Christ has yet to die on a cross for our sins. That's the culmination, the climax of the whole story. Not just the story of the book of Matthew in the New Testament, but the story of the whole Bible. There's one author, God. Many authors, human authors, penned it over centuries and centuries of time, but God inspired it to all relate to each other. So as you read it, there's one climax, one point, one main character, one hero, really, and that's Christ. All, all the other sub-heroes of the Bible are pictures and whispers of him. They're not replacements of him. They're not on an equal level with him. They're anticipations of him. So the gospel accounts in the New Testament are a great place to start if you're brand new to the Bible uh, or just want to refresh yourself on what the whole of the Scriptures say because Jesus so tirelessly quotes the Old Testament and says basically, this is what they were about. They were about me all along. So he kept quoting and quoting and quoting and alluding and alluding and alluding. They're always about him. There is no such thing as a passage of Scripture that's not about the gospel or not about the cross. According to Jesus, we have no quotation of the Old Testament in the New that's aside from Jesus or aside from the cross. It just simply does not exist. And so we are to read the Bible the same way Jesus did and the New Testament authors did in that. We are to read it as though it's all Christocentric or centered on Christ, centered on his mission, centered on his death and resurrection. That is what God is doing in the world. He has love for us and he's gathering us together away from banishment from him together with him. And in context here in Matthew 18, he's talking about God doing this, gathering lost sheep. Two weeks ago, he we talked about God gathering as a good shepherd, gathering lost sheep to himself, dying for them. And then in context, he's talking a lot about, first of all, what that means on the, the vertical level in God's love for lost sinners like us, but also what it means on the horizontal level too. So in other words, uh, Christian relationships, what, how the gospel of Jesus Christ informs and speaks to Christian to Christian relationship. So last two weeks then, to catch you guys up to speed, just real brief summaries. You can see how this thread has been working through Matthew 18. Uh, two weeks ago, we talked about how in the spirit of how God did not show us partiality. In other words, God did not favor the strong or favor the wise, favor the white collar, favor the the, the greatest in worldly definition of the term among us, but rather did not, did not do that. He, he favored the weak and the sinful. So In the spirit of how God did not show partiality, but instead lovingly chased down weak, wandering, simple sheep like us, and brought us back to himself, so should we not show partiality to other Christians, but express God's love and generosity, and again, non-partial way of loving and moving towards lost people to each other. And you could say to all people, but A lot of times the Bible speaks to Christians for the sake of, in the context of a community, it simply cannot be partial because at the core of our faith is a non-partial God. He's salvifically non-partial. And so we have to to believe that, but then demonstrate that in the way we interact with other believers. That was two weeks ago. Last week was, in the spirit of how God gained us back from our banished spiritual condition by lovingly exposing our sin, but not condemning us and forgiving us through Jesus' death and resurrection. In the spirit of that gospel... So, should we tactfully and lovingly help wandering brothers and sisters see their sin and especially see afresh their Savior? So, that was last week. And actually, they play off each other a little bit. But today, what he's going to do is especially, it's one conversation here that Jesus is having with his disciples. So, today, he's going to build on last week's passage by talking about forgiveness. So, as you might expect, after Jesus last week talked about confronting sin in another Christian's life tactfully and graciously, Peter asks, well, how much should we forgive others? If this is something Christians should do, exposing sin in other Christians' life. How much should we forgive? If we're constantly offended and insulted and condescended and sinned against by maybe one particular individual, how much should we forgive that person? And Jesus just responds with this lengthy, wonderful story, teaching. I think it's one of the most gospel-saturated teachings on forgiveness you'll get. In the entire Bible, for sure in the, in the book of Matthew, I think in the entire Bible as well. One of the most practical passages, too, on relational health that uh, I, can, I can think of. And personally, I've, I've confronted in reading the Scriptures. So, let's read it to begin. Matthew 18, 21 to 35. 21. Then Peter came up and said to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. And should not you have mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. All right, so a couple of words here uh, contextually that will help with some of the early things that are going on in this passage. In the first century, there was a rabbinic view that one own, and teaching that one only needed to forgive a person three times, on the fourth time, you either could or should withhold forgiveness. This is an extra biblical or outside the Bible teaching, Jewish teaching in the first century that also continued on for centuries, but it was, it was common, commonplace during Jesus' day. That serves as a bit of a background to what's going on here because when Peter responds to Jesus' uh, or poses a question to Jesus, he, he raises seven. So, interesting, we get a little bit of a glimpse into Peter's mind here. He's clearly learning something, even though we get a sense for which uh, Jesus is revealing himself to the disciples, the disciples don't really understand a lot of what's going on, a lot of what he's teaching, don't understand what the nature of the Messiah should be, I don't quite get yet, no one really is, that he has to suffer and so forth. He's getting something because he's understanding with the forgive only three times and then the fourth don't background that Jesus goes beyond that. He's bigger than that. He supersedes that. And even Old Testament law, too, we've seen in the Gospel of Matthew, he supersedes, he fulfills, he goes beyond it. He he fulfills it and absorbs it and takes it to an even higher level and wraps it up in himself. Sabbath teachings and food law teachings we've seen, for example, in the Old Testament, Jesus redefined and say they were always about me. Now that I'm here, I'm ending them, I'm the goal of them, and now your focus should be me and no longer law. So even the old, even the Old Testament law, we've seen Jesus address these things with the disciples present. And it's likely that Peter's understanding this to a degree, getting a sense for which Jesus goes beyond these types of things, because he says seven. So the rabbis say, and most of the Jews would say three only, and, and, and Peter doubles, more than doubles that quota, and says seven, probably thinking like, i kind of on the right track here, right? This is something Jesus would do. But then, of course, he's shot down, and he's not falling greatly short Because Jesus responds with not seven, but 77 times. In other words, in a never-ceasing manner. Right off the bat, we get that in the story. Jesus is very clear. You should never stop forgiving people ever who sin against you. That's radical enough right there. But Jesus goes on to demonstrate this, and more importantly, to teach on the power, the theological power behind what gives a person that ability to forgive. Who can do that? Think about your own life, Christian or not. When have you ever done that? When have you ever had that type of heart towards somebody, if someone that's offended you dozens and dozens of times, have you been able to do this or not? And for the most, most part, we just haven't. We're too stuck in our sin. We're too non-gospel-centered and Christ-empowered. We'll talk about that here in a minute to do this. But this is radical. So Jesus demonstrates this truth, but then the power behind what makes this possible, this type of radical forgiveness in the Christian's Life. So, two uh, big sections to today's passage you may have picked up on as we read it. So, he tells a story and he compares the kingdom of God to it. In other words, this is what salvation is like and this is a reality going on right now in the church. The church constitutes, really, uh, in the fullest way, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God on earth. Christ is saving people like us, gathering them together. And revealing his gospel to them and actually changing them, raising them from the dead, and he's saying this is one of the things that just will imperfectly, but generally speaking, will be true in that kingdom. Are you a part of it? Is one of the questions in the subtext here? I think is Are you a part of this kingdom? Is this the kingdom that's true here at Hiawatha Church, or in your own life as well? Are these characteristics true about you? So, so let me go back and recap this story briefly by adding a few things here that will help explain some of the nuances. If, if this is the first time you've heard this, some of these qualifications and explanations will be especially important. Otherwise, we'll miss some of the the weightiness of uh, what's going on here. So, in this story, Jesus says there's a servant and a a king. And the servant owes the king 10,000 talents. Now, a talent was a weight, actually, of currency. So, a weight of gold and silver uh, in the day that one talent equated to about 16 years of common labor's wage. That's one talent. So, 10,000 talents equated to about 160,000 years of salary. Good luck. Start working, (laughs) you know. Well, don't, but you know what I mean. That's just take a lot, a lot of time, a lot of luck. And actually, I was talking to uh, Jesse, one of our elders earlier. Uh, He was reading something on this passage this past week too that indicates uh, most scholars believe this or some degree of this, that there actually wasn't enough money in the world uh, in exchange in the day to cover this. So even if you were starting to work and could somehow... Do this, or actually, isn't enough money anywhere to cover this billions and billions and billions of dollars that this uh, would, have, would have covered. So, so the servant realizes the sheer impossibility. Have to get this. If you have any semblance of this is possible to pay back, get it out of your mind. It's impossible to pay back. Impossible. The servant realizes this, and we see this because he goes to beg for mercy, right? You don't beg for mercy and forgiveness to the king if you think that there's a possibility here. Of paying this out he says be patient just give me more time have mercy on me forgive me he says before the king and so note here then the king's response is super crucial it's wonderfully simple and full of love and mercy the king sees all of this happening sees the servant and he simply shows mercy he bypasses justice forgoes the debt requirement and releases the servant to be free that's the king's response uh, to to the servant But then the second part of the story, as that goes on, the servant goes out and finds one of his servants, a second servant of his, who owed him 100 denarii. So one denarii was about a day's uh, wage for a common laborer in the day. So 100, a little over three months' wage. Uh, That's that's the debt he's owed. And he starts choking this guy, demanding repayment. That second servant basically begs the same type of forgiveness that he did to the king, but the servant does not acknowledge it. Puts him in prison until he is uh, able to pay that debt. The servant was unable to do it. So those who witnessed both of these exchanges, who saw or heard about the first exchange with the king and the servant, and then saw that servant go and start to live life freely, but have this debt that he was owed and choke the second servant, those who saw it were distressed and bothered by this. As you can imagine, think if you saw this, it would be a bothering thing, right? an inconsistent thing, almost an unjust Kind of thing that you would be witnessing. And so they went and told the king about it. The king summons the first servant and says, You wicked servant, I forgave you a greater debt. Should you not have extended that forgiveness to your servant who owed a lesser debt? In anger then, the king punishes the servant, puts him back in prison until he can pay that first debt, which is impossible. he He eventually dies in prison, we can infer. Verse 35 then here is key. Last verse here. We don't need a verse like this necessarily to make these connections because we have the rest of the Bible to help us with this. But it's helpful that Jesus inserts this to say, So also, so also my heavenly Father will do to those who don't forgive. So, in other words, this, this uh, parable, this teaching, this story, is a parallel to a greater theological reality. The end is not the story in itself. It's always true for how Jesus teaches. He uses something... He demonstrates something with his teaching in a story form, but it points to a greater theological reality behind it. And so verse 35 makes it very clear. This is not about, it's not an actual historical event here he's pointing to. It's actually just a story that he's using to point to himself and to God and to salvation and to sinners. So here's then how it correlates. If it is a parallel, this is the parallel we need to make. God is the king, the master, and we are the first servant. We have incurred an unpayable amount of spiritual debt to God, 10,000 talents worth, 160,000 years of work. And that's actually conservative. A lot of people think it's a lot more than that as well. But it's not just that he has incurred this debt, he's in prison. So someone thinks that I could pay this off, I could somehow do it. No, you can't because you're in prison, you can't work. So it's doubly impossible, not just singly impossible, doubly impossible to pay off this debt. This is what we are, this is state of affairs for human beings before a holy God. We don't have a few dollars worth of debt before God. We don't even have a few million dollars of debt before God. That would be severe enough. We have billions and billions and billions of debt before God that's impossible to pay off. So this is the background the Bible's trying to paint here. Super important to understand. A lot of you guys know this, a lot of you don't. A lot of you guys have never felt this. Maybe you've heard this before, but you haven't received this into your heart yet and applied this type of theology. The Bible is saying it's impossible to be saved. It's impossible. On human terms, you cannot do it. He says that elsewhere in Mark 10, another gospel account. He acknowledges the impossibility of salvation. This has to be the back, dark background against which. The Bible big into contrast a lot of times. It's painting this dark, hopeless, impossibility of being saved background all over the place in both Testaments so that the bright foreground of Christ and what God offers us by his grace to be saved might shine all the brighter. Contrast is huge. So to to the point where if we don't understand the severity of our sin situation, think about it this way. If you think that you only have a few thousand dollars, spiritually speaking, of spiritual debt before God, what are you going to probably do? You're going to start to work, right? You're going to start to pay that off. You're going to start to live a good life and pay off God and turn his head and appease him and, and make him through your own moral effort, uh, favorable to you, even if it's millions. But if you don't think you can pay it off, if you know that deep in your soul, it's impossible to do it, you'll be like the servant. We will be like the servant. We'll go and beg God for deliverance, for mercy, right? And so many times us as Christians, even we'll, we'll wander back to the former way of living because we'll forget what the Bible's trying to teach you. We'll think that we just won't live or remember as much that we have 10,000 talents worth of debt. We'll live as more like we have the 100 denarii. It's a big deal. It's a problem, but it's not something completely out of the realm of my control. It's not something completely out of the realm of possibility for me to affect or earn or accomplish or gather myself with my, with my strength and my moral effort. So we've got to get the background. When sin gets lower for us, we start to work for God's salvation. When sin gets bigger, we beg for mercy. And that's what Christians do. When you're converted, that's what you've done. You've fallen on your knees like the servant and said, forgive me. Have mercy on me, a sinner. We've beat our chest. We said, God, save me. Save me from my sin. So that's the gospel. The gospel then says, like here we see with the king to the servant, the gospel says God shows mercy over justice. Or actually, This is one of the places where sometimes these metaphors, a lot of times actually, they're they're not meant to be one to one reality, so the metaphors will break down. This is one of those places because we know from the Bible that God does express justice on the cross, just mercy as well. So the way he does that is he becomes a human being to associate as one of us and then die in our place. In that sense, justice for our sin is done because he's a human being dying as a substitute in our place. So God. Exerts his justice by dying in our place and someone died for our sins, the Bible says. Gives himself for our sins, the Bible says. In another sense, though, and that's the way by which he's expressing love and mercy. So, the Bible says elsewhere that justice and mercy kiss at the cross. Both happen. He's completely just and completely merciful at the same time. But you could still say, though, in one sense, holding this story up, it's in one sense God bypasses justice For the sake of, he he erases our debt. He erases our sin for the sake of showing us love and mercy. This is what he's like. Praise God, this is the case. This is what the God of the universe is like. Us wicked criminals, he shows us mercy and love. The great theologian Bono uh, says uh, this on the gospel uh, love interrupts the consequences of our actions. Love interrupts the consequences of our actions. In other words, God is like the king in this parable. God is love and he loves us and his sacrifice interrupts the consequences of what we've done to him. We've all harmed people, we've all sinned, we've all broken his laws. This is the biggest way to understand sin. We've all self-deified. We've in some way lived or thought, even passively, that God is not of ultimate importance, that we don't need him. That we, This goes way back to Genesis 3, the first few chapters of the Bible, which describes how sin entered the world. The ultimate sin was to say, God is not enough. He's not, he's, not, he's not ultimately needed. I alone can be my God and determine what is right and wrong. And so it really goes back to rebellion. It goes back to this idea of widespread, I don't need God type living, which everyone has done and constantly does. We're just born into it. It's impossible not to do. It's at state uh, that we need to be saved from. But, so it makes love, God's love so amazing is we, we deserve an eternal hell, but his, his love through the cross, interrupts the consequences of those actions. So to the extent that in Christ, we are simply not treated as our sins deserve. You are not treated by God as your sins deserve because of what Jesus did. Praise God, that's the case. There's no condemnation anymore, the Bible says in Romans 8.1, for those who are in what Christ did for us, in Christ Jesus, it says. In Christ we're loved, not judged, loved, not judged, This parable is a whisper of this, but the reality is so much greater because God's a better king even than what we see in this. He's a more willing savior. He's a more willing mercy exuder. He's a more generous king than even what we see here. In Christ, we are all those things and more. This is simply then not the essence of other religions. A karma-based religion or a judgment-based on works type religion are damning news for sinners. Damning and terribly, terribly bad news because those systems treat us as our sins deserve. We do something and we are all much more sinful than we ever dreamed uh, possible because of what this is teaching here. And we will be treated as though we owe 160,000 years of salary before God. That's not good news. We will not be treated as though we owe 100 denarii's worth. We'll be treated as though we owe Billions and billions and billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars of debt, spiritual debt and sin. That's what we're going to be treated as. If, you, if, you, if we go the route of karma and we're going to be judged based on what we do for God, that's what we have to hope for. But again, the good news of the Bible is God's love for you and me interrupts that. It is, the cross is the great interrupting force of history. It comes in and it subverts all of it and absorbs it. It, it, it makes it so it passes over us. And bypasses us so we can have the hope of forgiveness, the hope of reconnecting with our Creator, the hope that death's not the end, the hope of eternal life, the hope of the washing of sins. We even see this in the Bible too, this idea um, when it talks about the law. In 2 Corinthians 3 6, uh, we see this statement. Paul's talking here, the Apostle Paul is talking to the Corinthian church about the similar matters, about the law in particular, but uh, he's relating the two. God on the latter side there and then the law or the letter in the in the former side. He says the letter kills the letter kills the law kills us but the spirit gives life. In other words, when God added the law through Israel in the Old Testament, it made the problem worse. It made people realize that oh, we don't have a few thousand dollars worth of debt because of what the law is saying. I realize I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. I fail. I fail. I fail. I'm a perfect I'm a perfect. I'm a perfect And we see how much that debt keeps just ringing, 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 ringing ringing up. It's One of the purposes, biblically speaking, of the law is actually to slay us. So we will look elsewhere for salvation. Not the Ten Commandments, not law, not morality, not self, not ability, not our work, but rather the Spirit, God, who gives life. See, note that these are different things here. The law kills, but when we realize that, like, in some sense, like the servant does here at the top of the parable, will run to God and say, have mercy on me. We will not simply run back to ourselves to somehow work this out on our own. So God gives life, not morality, not us, not works. All right, then there's a big shift in the story here. That's the first part, the gospel part. You could say the good news part of the parable. But then it starts to really focus all the more, even though we're a part of the story before, all the more on us. So here's how it correlates to us. One major point of the parable is simply to say, do not be like the servant. Don't be like him. Because of what we learn in the second part here. He's a forgetful, unappreciative man who is not living in light of the forgiveness shown him. He goes out, chokes another servant who owed him pennies. Pennies, literally, compared to what he owed the king. The question is, what does this say about a person? When they're doing this, what does this particular behavior of the servant say about his beliefs? So you may not realize this, but your beliefs always affect behavior. Behavior does not exist on an island. What you believe about these matters, what you believe about God, and your sin, your state before a holy God, and just other theological principles in the Bible will affect what you do on a daily basis. So, if we peel back the layers here of just the behavior of choking a servant over lesser debt. What's really underneath that top layer? What's the big why? What's the iceberg beneath the water type principle here, the 90% of the iceberg type principle going on here? Or you could ask it this way. What should have he been thinking when he confronted the second servant, his servant? And the answer is clear. From the first part, he should have been thinking, I have been forgiven greater things by the king. And that should have been a compelling or motivating forgiving factor for him as he had that interaction with one of his servants, it's the same for us. God, has, we should think this: God has forget when we're sinned against. God has forgiven me greater sins than those sins of others that have harmed me. I'm no better. So the question here that it just confronts us, we can't avoid it: is Do you believe this or not? These are the fundamental questions today. Here: Do you believe the gospel? Do you believe it's good news that God has died for you? He loves you. He's shown you. He's like the King. In the first part of this parable, then that's the foreground. Do you believe the background to it as well? Do you believe you have unpayable spiritual debt before God that He has eradicated lovingly? And here's the doozy. Do you believe your sin against God is always, always, always worse than people's sins against you? Do you believe your sins against God are all I don't care what you've experienced, I'm not trying to minimize the issues that you guys have had the sins that you've been sinned against it's not the point here the point is not to lower other sins against you the point is just to raise your sin and my sin against god do you believe that do you believe that anything you've done against god and we all have much more than we realize is always the 10,000 talents worth versus being harmed or condescended or insulted or sinned against by another person which is a 100 denarii worth do you believe in that difference If you've answered no to any of these questions, you have have greatly limited your ability to forgive. Greatly. Almost uh, uncountably so. You'll not be able to forgive 77 times. You will live an embittered, angry, vengeful, hateful, contempt-filled life for the rest of your days. Because you will and I will if we said no to any of these. We will be like the servant. We will go down not remembering the debt we had before the king, before God, we will go out and we will effectively, whether literally or just in our hearts, we will choke others and, have, and, we'll, and our lives will be more defined by revenge than it will be forgiveness. Tim Keller says on this matter, it is impossible to forgive someone if you feel superior to him or her. Impossible. It's impossible to do it. If you feel superior to someone who sinned against you, you will never forgive. You might call it forgiveness, but you're not really forgiving, probably in the deepest sense, from your heart. It's impossible to do it. And this is the sobering dimension to this. It's full, this this whole parable, it's full of amazingly good news, but also a warning to unforgiving Christians. Because harboring unforgiveness is a telltale sign that we do not understand the gospel. We just don't. We do not understand what happened on the cross we do not rightly understand who we are before a holy God. If we did, forgiveness would flow like a river from the headwaters of that belief. Imperfectly granted, but it still would much more naturally or in a spirit-led manner as God enables it. So these are heavy words because if we're honest with ourselves as Christians. Just speaking to the Christians in the room for, the, for a minute. As a Christian, how many times have you been unforgiving? You start to like, you're honest with yourself, <laughs> the tally starts to depress you. It, goes, it starts to go really high. We've been unforgiving. We've harbored things. We've been a little bit more about karma based ways of living or just unforgiveness or holding grudges or just wanting a little bit of revenge uh, somehow, whether we're the instigator of that for the person or not, just that they would somehow get that justice in their life. So it's, it's heavy words because we've all been unforgiving. And these are the words that Jesus is saying, don't be like him. Because it's a sign that you don't understand the nature of the cross, understand the essence of Christianity. But here's the call to unforgiving people like us. So important to get this. Here's what the passage says to us. In that state of being unforgiving, here's what it says. To do, think about the king's forgiveness. Hard. It's a mind game. Think about it. Notice that Jesus does not say here, work harder at forgiving. Try harder. Try harder. He doesn't say that, right? He says, think about the king's forgiveness. Go back to the beginning. Where have you come from? What's your story? How much sin do you have before a holy God? How much has that been forgiven? Oh, and there's a hundred denarii over here. It's, in one sense, if you really, not that it's going to be easy to do and forgive all the time, but in one sense, what's going to empower you to forgive is not the command to forgive more and to be better at it. What's going to empower you to forgive is thinking about Jesus. Period. Think about him. Understand the gospel better. Understand his beauty and his love for you. Gaze at it. With the Bible, this is so crucial to get that Jesus told a long story with a gospel beginning here and not just a proverb saying that forgiving people live longer or something like that. It's not not what's here. It's It's a better story grounded on better principles based on what God does for us, not what we do for him or others super super crucial to get Jesus is saying here the way to achieve that forgiveness meditation on him and the gospel and the cross it's a way of thinking that empowers forgiveness Ephesians 4:32 says the same thing just to give you another one of the many examples of this in the bible Ephesians 4 says be kind to one another tender hearted forgiving one another and here's the key as God in Christ forgave you because of what Jesus did, that's how he's accomplished forgiveness for you. He didn't just put a period after the another. Could have, but didn't there. Theologically, that's so deep and important to get. If you don't understand that, we, we stop thinking in a Christian manner. We are no different from a Muslim or a Buddhist or a Mormon. If we're just about trying harder to forgive, that's just religious. What makes us distinctly Christian in the way that we think is to think in Matthew 18 terms, to think about the king first, to think about the last part of this sentence first. C.S. Lewis says the same thing. To be a Christian is to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. That's what it means to be a Christian. But note the last part again in yellow there. That's the ground of what makes the former part possible. Or Charles Spurgeon, I love this as well. If any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him for you are worse than he thinks you to be. Think about that for a second. Do you see how deeply practical the gospel is here? See how deeply practical it is? If you, if you believe that when you're offended, when you're sinned against, when you're insulted or condescended, what we're going to think of right away is I'm way weaker and darker and filthier than this person thinks I am and they've treated me, but I am loved by God so deeply. You see how freeing that thought is, you guys? Nothing will free you more than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nothing will take off the shackles and empower radical, earth-shattering forgiveness than the gospel of Jesus Christ, than what God has done for you 2,000 years ago, than his love for you, his forgiveness of you. It is so incredibly wall-shattering between people. It's so incredibly disarming. You have no weapon anymore to shoot at people because you've realized, I've done worse things. I've done the same thing to that person last year or whatever the thought is to make you, to lower you and raise up God. God. And even other people before you but say, I'm way worse than that, actually. Such, such, such a freeing gospel thought to empower this type of radical forgiveness. So, so here's what you have to think then as Christians, or actually I should say must not think. As Christians, we must not think that there are other psychoanalytical tools to help us forgive. There simply are not. The Bible never says it. There's nothing else to talk about, really, when talking about forgiveness. You know, you can turn on a, a talk show or pick up a self-help book or read a Psych, Psychology 101 book and they'll probably have principles of how you can be a more forgiving person, but they're very outside the Bible. They're not biblical principles. The Bible says, actually, it's, it's, it goes to this extent. If you want to be forgiving, don't think about forgiveness. Think about the gospel. You want to be humble? Don't think about being humble. Think about the gospel and then you'll be humble. You want to be others-focused? Don't think about the principle of that so much as thinking about the gospel and what happened here. You just simply cannot read Matthew 18 any other way. Look at how it begins. It starts with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it ends with response. The the thread, the stream, the ocean of the scriptures are full of these types of principles in prepositional form and story form all over the place. It's just so crystal clear. God is the first lover, God is the first forgiver. And we live and move and have our being in that reality. Can't can't avoid that. This is how we are possible, this is how forgiveness and radical forgiveness of that is is possible. So in conclusion, what, what do we do here? I think three things. Remember, apply, and be warned. First is remember if you're a Christian, you know these things. If you're not, hear this for the first time: God is like the king. Be encouraged in that. He has mercy for you, he has love for you, he has forgiveness for you if you reach out by faith and just receive it as a gift. The Bible talks in gift terms all over the place, generosity terms all over the place about what happened on the cross. He has something, he controls salvation, it's something his, his, him, his to give you, not ours to receive and earn, or it's ours to receive but not to earn. We just have to reach out and grab and hold on to you by trust as if it were a life preserver in the middle of the ocean and we're drowning hold on to that concept and receive the forgiveness of sins through the cross. Ephesians 1.7 says that we have redemption and forgiveness of sins through the blood of Jesus Christ. He doesn't bypass the cross. The way that God forgives us is by dying in our place so that justice can be served as well. So wrestle with that. Wrestle with the juxtaposition in your mind between the hopeless backdrop of being able to save ourselves and the bright foreground of the God of hope. Wrestle with God's beauty. Wrestle with his insane love for you. His crazy love for sinners and criminals, spiritual criminals and rebels like us. It's amazing. And then secondly, then apply. Got to start with remembrance, but then apply. This is what it means to, to create a culture of forgiveness in a church. Uh, you can't just tell your church to work, like I said before, to be more forgiving. It'll never work, because law does not change us. Command does not change us, but, but Jesus does. So to create that culture of forgiveness starts with remembering the gospel, Every, like Carl said to, in his testimony earlier, how that's the sign of signs, and it's how what ultimately uh, lured him to God, like it has for all Christians. But to create that culture, start with that, then to uh, to apply that to forgive other people uh, in the spirit of how God has forgiven you, and also you could flip this around and think about think about it this way: if if non Christians see you as a Christian harboring grudges. If they, if they see you pervasively complain or whine about things on Facebook, uh, which is easy to do, uh, but and there are things, by the way, that Christians should be, um, have righteous anger over, but a lot of times as Christians, we, we, we basically exude unforgiveness by just whining and complaining so much publicly. So that's another example of this as well. But whatever it is, if, if they see us harboring grudges, living a life of complaint, then they'll likely believe that God, the God you worship har- harbors grudges. They'll likely believe that the God you worship treats us as our sins deserve. When you forgive or don't forgive, you might not think this, but you're preaching to people that are watching that happen. You're preaching. Everything's theological. When you forgive and know you're a Christian, you're saying something true and right and good and salvific about the God of the Bible. When you harbor grudges, you're preaching that the God of the Bible is a pseudo-Christian karma-based wacko. Not the God of the Bible. That's what you're saying with your actions. Never, don't, don't um, make mistake here. Everything we do is somehow, behavior is somehow flows from beliefs. What do you believe about the gospel? What do you believe about the cross? It will inform these things. have got to be careful as we create a culture here, especially Christian to Christian. But as people are watching that, it does wonders to preach to people and all those watching that God is good and loving and forgiving of us as well. So forgive. And I should qualify this too for those of you that are, have been especially hurt, maybe even presently. This Forgiveness does not mean that you have to trust people right away as well or be their buddies. That may never happen. Some of you have been hurt so much that you're never going to be, you're never going to trust that person again. But trust and forgiveness are different. So just forgive. Forgiveness means that you stop holding the grudge. Forgiveness means that you bring peace between you and the offending party, just like God does those things for us. So it means that we absorb, we forgive, we look past the offenses in the spirit of the gospel of grace. And like God says, through what Jesus does on the cross, I will remember your sins no more. That's good news. Hold on to that one today. That whatever you've done, whatever you've thought in your life, God has so much forgiven you. If you receive that forgiveness, it's as if he forgets. He forgets. You know, often we subconsciously just think that God is remembering my sin all the time. He's just constantly, its just this beacon up there, blaring at my face. You know, and right in front of him, constantly. You know, in one sense, God knows everything. But through Christ, he says, I will remember your sins no more. They'll be removed from you. So the spirit of that, I think, can be embodied in how we interact with other Christians, how much we radically forgive them when they uh, sin against us, even if it's super messy to still work towards that with the gospel as our main tool for it. And then third, be, be warned. So I started with remember, God is like the king, good news, but also be warned, God is like the king. Verse 35 says that those who don't receive his offer of forgiveness through Christ will be imprisoned forever in hell. So when we say don't be like the servants, and Again, I want to make sure this is really clear. When we say, don't be like the servant, when the parable says, don't be like the servant, it's not saying, try harder to forgive. It's saying, think about the gospel of grace. And really, so it's important to understand this because we can think because of this parable, the way 35 is worded, that unforgiveness is the unforgivable sin. If we don't forgive people, if we harbor grudges, it's outside of the realm of God's possibility to forgive. That's not what this is teaching. If you think about it, who's... What's, what picture is the servant of? It's a picture of a guy that does not understand the gospel, right? He's not believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's not receiving grace, not receiving forgiveness. But kind of scary in one sense, if you push the metaphor a bit, this guy had an experience of grace. You know, he, he probably, he, in one sense, he's a picture of someone hearing about the gospel, but not really receiving it into his life and applying that uh, to his heart. So the, the question really, in one sense, the question of questions is, where are you guys today with Jesus. Is this your understanding of the kingdom? Have you, are you like the servant in one sense at, at the top part of the parable, but the bottom part, are you not like him? Are you really understanding the severity of sin and the wonder of his mercy and grace? And is it affecting, by his grace, your life to the point where humility starts to grow uh, naturally and forgiveness starts to grow naturally? Great question with God and others in the community to really wrestle with and make sure you're really understanding Christianity and not morality. Let's pray. God, thank you for today, uh, your grace in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the pervasiveness of the gospel in every single word of the scriptures, how much it constantly declares from the mountaintops that you save, you bypass justice in a sense, you express and exude mercy and love at the highest level. Praise God forever for that. You remember our sins no more. Hallelujah. God, I pray that that would be, for those that are not yet believers in Jesus Christ today, that you would make sure that's heard in their souls. Thank you that you love them so much and you desire that type of relationship with them, that type of freedom where, that you just pronounce upon their life because of what you've done for them on the cross. And, uh, but also, God, that we'd have a culture more here uh, in our lives individually, for those outside the church as well, certainly, but this is brother-to-brother stuff here, as we've been talking about a lot in Matthew 18, especially Christian-to-Christian at Hiawatha Church. For those who call this place home, that you'd help us by grace to continue to foster a culture of forgiveness so that as we preach about God's forgiveness, we also see it demonstrated interpersonally as well. Forgive us for harboring grudges. Forgive us for anger. Forgive us for uh, whining and complaining and not seeing you as sufficient or enough. Forgive us for thinking that we're better than other people and condescending them like the religious, far from Jesus Pharisees of the New Testament. Forgive us all that and more, God, and help us instead to use that gospel to promote humility and true, radical, never stopping to forgive. 77-time forgiveness uh, in uh, our culture of church here. And I pray this all. It has to be from you, God, because you're the one that gives us the gospel. So we pray you'd give us that more and more and more and more like a fire hose for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.